Good morning and happy Palm Sunday. Hope you guys are, are well. As you can see, we have stepped up our social distancing game just a little bit uh, this week. For the past few weeks, we have canceled our physical gatherings of our, of our entire church. And instead, we've had uh, small handfuls of people uh, gather together to record the worship service, to do the music and the other uh, portions of the service. And then we kind of broadcast them on Sunday mornings. This week, we're going to try to be even a little more careful than that. Um, in an attempt to limit our physical contact even uh, of, of even more, uh, we had various people record different portions of the service from their from their homes on on their own. I mean, even right now, I'm the only person uh, here in in this this building, and so the result is that uh, you know that the this looks a little more homemade, and we kind of knew that going in. And we, it, I mean, as we understood it, it's a small price to pay uh, in order to join with our neighbors to join with the greater community uh, in our efforts to attempt to stop the spread of the coronavirus uh, and in an attempt to try to, you know, serve and, and love the most vulnerable people among us by not giving them the, the virus and in an attempt to serve and love the people in the healthcare system by uh, not overwhelming them with more people that need treatment. And so, um, so our hope is, our hope is, always has been, still is, to resume gathering physically just as soon as possible. I mean, literally, as soon as it is safe and responsible to do so, we are excited and we can't wait to begin gathering physically together uh, again. I mean, we we're, we grieve over the fact that we can't uh, meet physically. Um, we don't. It probably goes without saying, but we don't consider online uh, church to be. Uh, church to, to be a, a valid replacement for the physical gathering of the church in one place. But, you know, it's just, it's what we have. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you lose your arm in a freak accident um, and had the opportunity to get a prosthetic arm, that opportunity is a gift, right? It's a, it's a blessing to live in a time in human history where you have the technology to make a prosthetic arm. So by all means, if you lose your arm, go ahead and get a prosthetic arm. Of course, having your real arm is better than having a prosthetic arm. So don't, don't cut your arm off so that you can go get a prosthetic arm just because it happens to be technologically possible. We would advise against that. And, and gathering is kind of like that as, as we understand it, right? Um, you know, full disclosure, uh, I don't think that this is as good as, as gathering physically. I don't think that we are able to connect with one another as effectively. I don't think that we are able to encourage one another as effectively. I don't think that we are able to bear one another's burdens together as, as effectively. Right? I, mean, I, I think that worshiping online uh, in, in contrast to gathering physically is definitively worse in, in every way. Um, so it's not something that we would choose to do if we had the option um, of gathering physically. However, um, if we had to choose between gathering, uh, between worshiping online and not worshiping together at all, we would choose to, to worship online. So it's like, it's like a prosthetic arm, right? It's not as good as a real arm, but it's better than no arm at all. And so, uh, you know, we're not celebrating this. We're not, you know, strategizing and making plans to do this uh, forever, but we are grateful to God that this is an option for us right 
now. We're grateful that we can uh, continue to, you know, worship together while still loving our neighbors and caring for the most vulnerable uh, among us. And so uh, this morning, our, our sermon is um, from Lamentations chapter 4. Go ahead and turn to Lamentations chapter 4 in your Bibles if you have them. If you're using a pew Bible from James River, you can find it on page 645. If you are using another Bible, you can find Lamentations kind of right in the middle. If you open up to the middle, look for um, Isaiah and Ezekiel. I'm sorry, Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's going to be immediately after Jeremiah and immediately before Ezekiel. So look for, for the book of Lamentations in uh, the middle there. Um, if you've been listening to the sermons for the last few weeks, uh, you can have some, you know, some mercy, some relief this week. Uh, Lamentations 4 is not as long as chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's about 30 to 40% shorter. And um, next week we'll probably preach something different since it's Easter. But when we come back to Lamentations chapter 5, it's even shorter than that. It's even 50% shorter than Lamentations chapter 4. So, um, you know, by God's grace, these texts are getting a little bit shorter, a little bit easier to, uh, to listen to in their, in their entirety. So let's read through Lamentations 4 and then pray and then uh, consider how we can apply it to our lives. It reads, how the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even the jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment. No hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. Their beauty of their form was like sapphire. And now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of fruits in the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children, and they have become food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed, in the midst, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. 
The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish and he will uncover your sins. Pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask your blessing on this time as we study your word together. We pray that you would work supernaturally through it. We pray that you would bond us, even as we are scattered all over the place in our various homes, we pray that you would bond us together in love. We pray that you would make us more like Jesus. We pray that you would grow us and bless us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin in verse uh, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The author is using an illustration to intentionally set up a stark Contrast. There was once gold. It was beautiful. It was shimmering. It was priceless. You put it in necklaces and in jewelry. But now this gold has lost its shine. It's dull. It's unappealing. Right? There were these beautiful, precious stones. They were rubies and sapphires and diamonds. But now they're scattered about in the streets and they've been trampled on. There's a picture of a, of a stark contrast between something incredibly valuable and incredibly beautiful... And something that's common and dull and useless and, and discarded or despised. And the author says that is a fitting illustration of what is to come to Jerusalem. What has come to Jerusalem. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Right? They, they had it all. The city was literally worth its weight in, in gold. Right, and Under David, uh, the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of the country of, of Israel and, and Judah, had this, this meteoric rise. And, and uh, borders were expanding and enemies were being defeated. And it was being ruled by a man after God's own heart, a man who loved God and who repented when he sinned, right? Under Solomon, uh, it was the capital city. It was the centerpiece of a wealthy, lavish 
country that was that was flush with cash and resources. People ate the finest foods and they drank the finest wines and everything was perfect and everything was awesome. And, and, and God dwelled there. God, God dwelled in Jerusalem. His temple was there. The Holy of Holies was there, right? The priests would offer sacrifices there. People would travel from far and wide to get there. People could be reconciled to God there in the temple, there in Jerusalem. It was literally the most priceless, most precious, most valuable piece of real estate on the entire planet. When when God created his world, right, God dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden and life was as it should be. And, and it was like it was like Adam and Eve were living in the most holy place, in the inner room, in the temple. And then when they sinned, they got kicked out. They lost access to this beautiful life and God, they couldn't dwell with God. But even still, God himself dwelled in the inner room of the of the temple. The, the inner room in the temple was this uh, this vestige of the Garden of Eden where God dwelled. And it was in the temple and it was in Jerusalem. This was a beautiful, important, priceless city. And it had gone from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths. Once they were like fine gold, now they are like earthen pots. They're a dull, worthless clay pot that you put dirt in or that you throw away, right? And that that was Jerusalem's story. They were the world's most powerful, you know, most impressive city. They were once rich. They had everything that they could want. And now they were... Uh, has been. Now they were forgotten. Now they were useless. Now Babylon had come in and besieged them and destroyed them. You can read about this in uh, in Second Kings chapters four, twenty four and twenty five, uh, when Babylon comes in and besieges and destroys and, and takes over the city of Jerusalem. Right. They caused an intense plague and people are starving to death. They invaded the city. They captured the king. They tortured him. They they killed his sons right in front of his very eyes. That that was the last thing that he would ever see is his sons dying because then they actually plucked out his eyes and blinded him for the rest of his life. They, They burned down the temple. They burned down all the houses and buildings to the ground. They smashed the walls, the defensive structures. They kind of raised them to the ground. They deport everyone into slavery and foreign nations. The only people they leave as slaves and forced laborers in Jerusalem, it says, are the poorest of the poor they left there. Judah had gone from having everything to having nothing. Judah had gone from inhabiting the most glorious, beautiful, valuable city in the world to being slaves, to being trafficked to the highest bidder. To being used like property and discarded like trash. In verse 3, even, even jackals offer their breasts, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. He's saying, this is how bad things have gotten for the, the city of Jerusalem. People are abandoning their children and leaving them to die. This, this stuff doesn't even happen in the wild, in the wilderness with wild animals like, like jackals. Even, even jackals take care of their offspring. Even jackals won't let their, their, their children die from exposure, the only animals that do that are ostriches. If you, if you flip to, uh, to Job chapter 39, this is what God says about ostriches in Job chapter 39. He says, the ostrich lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand. Unmindful, 
that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not even hers. She does not care that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her, the ostrich, with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. God says, ostriches abandon their offspring because they're stupid. Because they're, they're idiots and they don't know any better. But you know what? Humans don't. Ostriches abandon their offspring. Humans do not. Because humans have worth and dignity and value. Humans don't, human beings take care of their kids because their kids are important to them and they're important to God. Every single person having been created in the image of God is important to God. Every adult, every child, every parent, every baby, every uh, unborn and born, rich and young, uh, rich and poor, young and old. Every single person matters to God because every single person was created in God's image. This, this is why this is why murder is bad, right? This is why slavery is bad. This is why racism is bad. This is this is why abortion is is bad. This is why taking the life of an unborn child is bad because that child was created in the image of God. This is this is actually why we're not meeting physically right now because our society is taking drastic measures to reduce physical contact in the hopes of maybe saving as few as one human life. We recognize collectively that human life matters. Every life, even if you're old or sick or immunocompromised, you matter. Your life matters because you were created in the image of God. And our society recognizes that and wants to try and save the lives of people who matter. Ostriches don't care about their kids. Human beings do. And the author is saying things have gotten so bad in Jerusalem that these people who who instinctively, by their very nature, care about their kids because they were created in the image of God, they're abandoning their children. Not, not because they're stupid, like ostriches, not because they are cruel, like sociopaths or genocidal dictators, that they're, they're abandoning their kids because they have no choice. Verse four, the, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them, right? All the citizens of Jerusalem love their kids as much as we love our kids. They want to take care of their kids. They want to provide for the kids, but they can't because they don't have any food to eat. They don't have any water to drink. Right? And there's this massive army from Babylon staring them down, ready to kill them. And so their only choice is to hide. To hide and to hope that they don't get killed. The kids are crying for food. They're asking for water. They've got nothing to give to them. Verse 5, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heap. This is more contrast language, right? People were rich. People were eating the finest foods. They were having lavish parties. They were enjoying everything that life has to offer. Now they're dying in the streets. There were royalty, people who were wearing purple their entire lives, fancy, expensive fabrics from a foreign land. They wanted for nothing. And now they are wallowing in a pile of garbage and trash and, and ashes, right? They went from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths. This language is intentionally meant to communicate this intense, scandalous contrast. 
And the author is saying, Jerusalem, that's you. That's your story. That's your situation. Verse 6, for the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her, right? You remember Sodom, Jerusalem? You remember how, how bad they were? Remember from Genesis chapter 19, the city that was destroyed because of their sin and violence and God rained fire down from heaven onto them to destroy them, going so far as even burning up all of the, the vegetation in the land, right? It, it would have been better to have been incinerated in Sodom than to be an inhabitant when Babylon came and besieged it. Verse 7 is more contrast language. Her princes, Jerusalem's princes, were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. Their beauty, the beauty of their form was like sapphire. So these, these rich kings and princes and governing officials that have lived lives of, of luxury and, and leisure and joy, right? It was considered attractive in the ancient Near East to have, you know, pale skin because it meant that you had money. You could stay inside and enjoy recreational pursuits instead of having to spend your life, you know, working outside in the sun and just getting baked all day. And he's saying the people of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem were rich. They had everything they wanted. Everything was, it, it was lavish. It was leisure. It was luxury. They had perfectly sculpted bodies, right? Like supermodels. And now verse eight, now in contrast, now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Right, The guys who once had this beautiful complexion and beautiful appearance, they have trash and soot smeared all over their faces. They had washboard abs and perfectly sculpted bodies, and now they're literally skin and bones, starving to death, Right, shriveled up like a raisin. Skin looks like dried leather. They've gone from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths. And here's how bad it was, right? Right. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits of the field, right? He says, the situation has gotten so bad. People are dying. People like the, the, your circumstances have deteriorated so bad that it would be better to just be killed. It would better to just be killed by a, a sword, right? At least then it would come and go quickly. Someone would come in, lop your head off, and then you just, that, that's it. There's no, it's, it's just a quick, fast end. He says, what you're experiencing is this long, drawn out, painful suffering, no food, no water, watching your children die in your arms. And even worse, verse 10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. So these parents who love their kids and care about their kids, their kids die in their arms and they're faced with a choice. Do, do we die from starvation as well? Or do we literally practice cannibalism, uh, so that our, uh, so that we can maybe live a few extra days, uh, in, in order to, to stave off this death, this painful death by starvation, right? Verse, and then verse 11, it's not, all of this is happening, right? All of this, all of, uh, you know, this death and suffering and pain, all of this is happening not because of some random series of events, not just because it happened to turn out this way, 
This happened because God willed it and God ordained for it to happen. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. God is the one who purposed for Nebuchadnezzar and and the nation of Babylon to invade the city of Jerusalem, right? God is the one who is sovereign over it. God is the one who orchestrated it. God is the one who did it to accomplish his purposes and accomplish his purposes against all odds, uh, against everything that everyone thought would happen. Verse 12, the kings of earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that a foe or an enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is this fortified city. It's this strong city. It's this powerful city. No one can invade Jerusalem, right? All of the other kingdoms would be out knocking each other off. Just king of the hill. Who's in charge this week? And Jerusalem could never be invaded like that because they were strong. They were fortified. They were protected. And yet that's exactly what God willed to happen. That's exactly what God accomplished. And why? What what is it that Jerusalem did to warrant this terrible judgment from God? Why did God bring about this terrible judgment? I mean, all all kinds of sin, to be honest, right? Uh, Sin, idolatry, worshiping other gods, forsaking their covenant with God, sexual immorality, injustice, mistreating their neighbors and taking advantage of them, all kinds of of sins. And yet, uh, the author of Lamentations says that it, it starts at the top, right? Verse 13. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. He says it starts with the religious leaders. It starts with the priests, the prophets. It starts with starts with the pastors and the elders and the deacons of, of the church. Right As the leaders go, so the people go. Right? So, so So people are responsible for their own decisions. People are responsible for their own choices, their own behaviors, their own sins. God doesn't let anyone off the hook by saying that someone else is responsible for your sin. And yet God does also say that the leaders of his people are particularly responsible. They are especially responsible, right? Not only for their own life and for their own doctrine, but also for the life and doctrine of the people that God has entrusted to them, for the people that God has tasked them with caring for and with with shepherding. That's what comes with the territory of being a leader. Which means that... If, if you're an elder in this church, you bear a particular responsibility for the people here in this church. It's not like uh, my job is to keep my house clean and to make sure that I'm doing well and my family's doing well. And that's it. My, my family is my responsibility. Your family is your responsibility. Good luck. If, if you're an elder here, the, the lives and the souls of the people in this church, of the members of this church, are your responsibility. God is going to hold everyone accountable for their own sin, first and foremost, but God is also going to hold leaders accountable for the people that they are responsible for, right? Not just elders, but if you're a spouse, if you're a husband or or a wife, your job is not just to cultivate your own walk with the Lord and to make sure that you are reading your Bible and praying and trusting Jesus. It's also to love and serve your spouse and help them to walk with God. 
your spouse's problem is your problem. It's not just enough to cultivate your own relationship with God. You have to invest in your marriage to ensure that it's a place where your spouse can grow in their relationship with the Lord with you. Same thing with with parents, right? You're responsible for your children. It's not enough to walk with God as an individual. God has tasked you with raising and shaping and molding and discipling your children. You're responsible for them. You are accountable for them because you're a leader and they have been entrusted to you. See that works? So so every single person, by virtue of having been created in the image of God, is ultimately responsible for themselves and for the state of their own soul. And yet leaders are also responsible for the people and for the state of their souls as well. And these leaders in Jerusalem... Uh, abdicated their responsibility and failed miserably. They they killed innocent people and spilled their blood on the ground. They they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Completely defiled, totally outcast, like a leper in a leper colony. Verse 15, away, unclean people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. Even even foreigners wouldn't go near these priests and prophets of of Jerusalem. The the priests of Israel, the prophets of Israel, Israel was famous for its ritual purity. Everything... Everything about it was cleanliness and sanitation from uh, circumcision to dietary laws, all the way down to how you handle things like mold or infectious diseases, how you treat your animals, how you prepare your food, how you launder your clothing. Everything's about being clean. Everything's about being pure, how you wash your hands before you eat. And the the priests and the prophets, they were the authority on the matter. Their their job was to be more pure, more clean than ever anyone else. And here they are, having been cast out into the nations, the defiled, uncircumcised, filthy nations. And even the nations are like, ew, gross. These these prophets and priests from Jerusalem, get them away from me because they are unclean. This is the cleanest, purest people being cast out and, and they are filthy to anyone and everyone who comes in contact with them. Verse 16, God has scattered them. He has disregarded them. There's no honor or favor for them. Now, verse 17, our eyes have failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save. We have been disregarded. We have been destroyed. We have been abandoned. God has left us. So what do we do? Let's look elsewhere. Let's look to other countries, other nations. Egypt, come help us. Other nations, come help us. We've been networking. We've been keeping our relationships intact. We've got treaties together. Come help us. And they put their ear out and it's just silence, just crickets. No one is coming to help. No one is coming to save them. Right? Maybe these other nations are afraid of Babylon. Maybe these other nations are indifferent to the fate of Jerusalem. Maybe it's some combination of those two things. But either way, no one is coming and no one is helping. 
Verse 18, they dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. So now Babylon is is finishing the job. They're tying up all the loose ends. They're not going to let Jerusalem escape. They're not going to leave the job unfinished. They're going to stalk them and track them down and take every last one of them into captivity and make sure that they have total control over Jerusalem. Make sure that they are completely broken, completely demoralized. Verse 19, they're swifter than eagles. They chase the Israelites into the mountains. They lay in wait for them in the wilderness. Verse 20, they capture their king, right? This king who was anointed to lead them, right? This king who the the city was so dependent on that he was literally like the breath in their lungs. They, They couldn't breathe without this king leading them, right? And they said, we live under the shadow of his protective care. This king that we are so dependent on Babylon got him, and Babylon abused him, and Babylon tortured him, and Babylon carried him off into captivity, and he can't help you anymore. And then, in the midst of all of this despair, in the midst of all this angst, and all of this, uh, all of this just total destruction and chaos, in the last two verses, there's a sliver of hope, just a ray, a slight little ray of light. Verse 21, rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but but to you also this cup shall pass. You shall drink and become drunk and strip yourself bare. Now, Edom Right, This is not Israel. Right, This is Edom. Israel traces their lineage back to uh, through, through Jacob. Right, Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had a brother named Esau. And Esau was who Edom traced their lineage back through. So if you want extra credit this week, you can read about the, you know, the nation of Edom coming into existence in Genesis chapter 36. And you can read about the destruction of the nation of Edom in the minor prophet Obadiah. So that's kind of the bookends for the the civilization of Edom. But for our purposes here, the broad strokes are that Israel and Edom did not get along. Right? Not, Not only did Edom not come to help Jerusalem when Babylon invaded them, Not only did they not come, they actually looked on and cheered, right? Uh, Psalm 137, verse 7 says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. They're cheering and laughing and gloating. Obadiah, verses 11 through 14 says, On that day, you, Edom, you stood aloof while strangers carried off their wealth. Foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, and you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. You should not rejoice over people of Ju- over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. You should not boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, or gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives or hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. That was Edom. 
standing by, looking on, gloating, laughing, celebrating, right? Grabbing any stragglers or any survivors and killing them or selling them into slavery. And the author says, yeah, sure, enjoy it while it lasts, Edom. Like, laugh now while you can, because what goes around comes around. Right? And this cup that Israel, that Jerusalem is drinking right now, this cup of God's wrath, you, Edom, you are going to be drinking from it pretty soon. You're going to be made drunk by it. You're going to be exposed and you're going to be humiliated. And the inverse is true for the city of Jerusalem. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in it no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish you and he will uncover your sins. So Edom, you're riding high, you're enjoying life, you're laughing at Judah. Well, you're going to get a taste of your own medicine and you won't be laughing anymore. And you, Jerusalem, you're being punished. You're being completely devastated. But hear this word of encouragement in the midst of it. Your punishment will not last forever. You're in exile now, but God's going to bring you back, right? God is going to restore you. God is going to destroy your enemies and put them down and he's going to restore you. So, so Jerusalem, even in the midst of this terrible suffering, this terrible punishment, be encouraged and hang in there and persevere. And that's Lamentations chapter four. This This scandalous contrast between where Jerusalem was and where they are now, between where they were and what they have become, the suffering that they were enduring, the judgment of God, all because of their sin and because of the sin of their their leaders, and in the midst of that, God's promise to eventually restore them and judge their enemies and bring them back into a relationship with Him. Which raises the question, what does any of this have to do with me, with us as Christians in 2020, right? What does that have to do with us sitting at home on our couches under quarantine because all of the church services have been canceled? What, what does Lamentations have, chapter 4 have to do with me? Well, consider this, right? This text is all about this uh, stark contrast between Jerusalem's former glory and their current suffering and deep sadness. And is there not also a sense in which we can locate a similar contrast in our own lives? Is there not a difference between the life that we are living currently and the life that we were created to live? Is there not a difference between the world that we currently inhabit and the world that God created? God created this world and when he did, he said, this world is good. Light, dark, sun, moon, land, seas, plants, animals. It's all good, good, good good. And then God created humanity and he said, this is 
very good, right? This, this is a perfect world that I have created for my children, my image bearers that I love. I created it for them to live in with me. No pain, no suffering, no death. Just God and God's people and a beautiful, perfect garden to live in and to enjoy and to worship God in. That is the world that God created. That's the life that God created for you to live. In the words of Jesus, he came so that we might live and live life to the full, to live it abundantly. So that's where we were. That's what we were created for. Now consider the contrast between that and our current circumstances. Sheltering in place. Hiding in our homes to avoid contracting a deadly virus. Rationing out toilet paper, right? Because we anticipate that we're going to be in our homes for weeks or months on end. Ventilators on back order. Surgical masks on, on back order. Tens of thousands of our neighbors dead. There's so many people are dying that cities are starting to run out of body bags. One of One of the people who've died from the coronavirus is a member of one of the churches in our consortium. Not to mention all of the suffering that's just a part of our lives normally, apart from the coronavirus. Cancer, disease, death, abuse, mistreatment, strained relationships, unforgiveness, bitterness, entitlement, right? You can go on and on. The life that we are living is not the life that we were created to live. The world that we are inhabiting is not the world that God created us to enjoy. There's a deep, scandalous contrast between where we are and where we were. And yet, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of the deepest of suffering, God makes his promises to us. And God will never, ever break his promises. God promised in Lamentations, God promised to, to, to destroy Jerusalem's enemies. He promised to restore Jerusalem to their former glory. And God makes the same promises to us. God promises that Satan and sin and death will not have the last word. Our enemies will not have ultimate victory over us. They may be looking on now. They may be laughing now like Edom did to Jerusalem. But friends, that is not the end. In the end, Satan himself will be defeated. He will be thrown into hell for all of eternity. Right? All of the accusations that he hurls at you, all of the harassment that he has done to the people of God, it will come to an end and Satan will be destroyed. Sin will no longer have any power over you. The very presence of sin will be completely eradicated as we live with God in his kingdom. Death itself will be a thing of the past that we cannot even remember. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 reads, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. 
our lives represent a stark contrast between where we are and where we were, right? Where we are and where we were created to be. And yet, in Christ, God promises to us, in the midst of our suffering, in Christ, God himself took our punishment in our place. In Christ, God himself became a man. God himself lived the perfect life that we failed to live. God himself died the sinner's death that we deserved to die. God himself bore the wrath that was rightfully ours. And on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that was meant for us, that was meant for me, and that was meant for you. And as a result, we can come to God through faith in Christ. We can can trust that our exile will not last forever, our suffering will not last forever, that one day God will bring us home. He will bring us home to himself, to be with him, and to live with him forever and ever and ever. And our task as Christians, as the people of God, is to trust Him. And it's to trust in His promises, even in the midst of our suffering. Our sin is great. It has evoked the wrath of God Himself. But our Savior is greater. And Jesus is faithful to save us if we trust him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that the gospel is true. Lord, we thank you that you are with us even in the midst of pain and suffering. We thank you that we can be reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we come to you right now trusting in you. We come to you acknowledging the deep pain and suffering and sadness that is a part of our lives, just like the author of Lamentations. And yet we come to you trusting you in the midst of our sadness, knowing that you are good and that you are sufficient to save us. We love you and we trust you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.